The Secret Service was founded in the aftermath of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. But it wasn't until the death of John F. Kennedy that the Presidential Protection Service began to get closer attention from the American people. Carol Lennick began reporting on the Secret Service for the Washington Post in 2012. In the prologue of her new book, Zero Fail, she writes that she started her coverage on Hookergate, the scandal in which agents brought prostitutes to their hotel rooms while making arrangements for President Obama to visit Cartagena, Colombia. We talked with Ms. Linick about her in-depth look in her new book subtitled The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. Carol Lennig, when you walk in the lobby of the Secret Service building, as you say in your book, it says, worthy of trust and confidence, in a big quote. What's your reaction when you see that? True about so many of the dedicated men and women who work there, and not true um, about a number of them, and the agency writ large. This is an agency that has many, many officers and agents who believe it cannot fulfill its mission, that it is treading water, and it's worth more of our attention, for sure, as Americans. It's worth more of our dedication in order for it to deliver on its zero-fail mission. When did you start thinking about the service this way? You know, I fell into this beat, Brian, by accident. Uh, I was just a reporter who had a reputation for being able to get people who were difficult to talk to to talk to me. And I was assigned to figure out what in the world had happened in Cartagena when a group of agents were shipped back from a presidential trip there in Colombia because they had turned that trip into kind of a Vegas weekend of debauchery, prostitutes, heavy drinking, and um, they'd been caught. And I was supposed to figure out what went wrong and had this kind of thing been going on for a while. But when I did that, and when I really began to meet more of those agents and more of those people, I discovered they were worried about something much bigger than Cartagena. They were worried about a broken agency and a dysfunction and that the president might be killed on their watch. When did the Secret Service Agency work? You know, in the aftermath, the national trauma of Kennedy's assassination, a director who is the director of the agency when that happens in 1963 vows that it will never happen again. And so do all his deputies and all his agents. You know, they are traumatized by that failure. And they resolve that they are going to devote their lives to rebuilding the Secret Service. They are vindicated for the decades after when they've added staff, they've added more rigorous training for an attack on the president. They've added all sorts of new technology that was cutting edge at the time. And, you know, several presidents uh, are the victims of assassination attempts that fail. Gerald Ford, twice people tried to kill him and were foiled. Uh, Ronald Reagan nearly died. uh, And it was the split second reactions, the training and the rigor of the Secret Service agents with him that day that, that saved his life. 
at what point, probably more than one, did you come across information in the research for this book and you said, wow, I didn't know that? <laughs> Almost every week sometimes. I mean, I felt like I knew, we all feel like we know what happened when Reagan was attacked. We all feel like we we saw the news clippings of what happened when George Wallace, a candidate for president, was shot. We all think we know what happened in, in Cartagena because there was a lot of good news coverage of it in real time. But every moment of, of this research, I felt like there was something new that, that floored me. Um, the day before Reagan, just an example, the day before Reagan was, was almost killed, the deputy in charge of his protective detail had a like spitting, cursing argument with the White House Deputy Chief of Staff, who insisted that the Reagans should be allowed to walk out the front door of the White House across Lafayette Square, the park in front of the White House, to the church, St. John's, because it was a Sunday and they wanted to, you know, get out amongst the people, just be normal. Um, But the deputy in charge of the detail said, you cannot take him across a city street safely. It is not safe. The deputy White House chief of staff insisted that was ridiculous, and uh, he won that battle. The White House staffer won the battle with the detail agent. But the next day, that detail agent was completely proven correct. The president cannot safely walk down a city street without a lot of planning and kind of a, a security bubble around him that the Secret Service creates. In your author's note at the beginning of the book, you say an important note about my purpose. Some Secret Service leaders and alumni have vowed to attack my work, claiming that I seek to embarrass their venerable institution and highlight its blemishes. Have they attacked your work? Uh, yes, <laughs> they have attacked my work um, more more quietly than I expected, though. The book was really well received by so many agents and officers and political leaders in, in in Washington now who said, this is a wake-up call. This is a worry. We have to take it seriously. In the course of my research, many alumni, um, including the, the Foreign Agents Association, a very prominent alumni network, published newsletters in which they, they warned that my book was going to be this horrible tell-all, exaggerations, embarrassments and um and they they said that it was going to be a work largely of fiction uh however it's not everything in this book is corroborated and true and the i guess the best part about releasing the book has been hearing from agents and officers i've never met before who who thanked me just wrote me letters and emails and texts saying thank you for doing this because we need somebody to pay attention to how broken the service is now. When John F. Kennedy was killed, how many agents were there and how many are there now? There were about um, 300 Secret Service agents at that time and a very small fraction of them overall responsible for protecting President Kennedy and his wife, Jackie. At the time, Jackie Kennedy had one agent in charge of her and uh, a few deputies that were in charge of the children. Very, very skeletal crew. Today, there are 7,000 Secret Service agents, officers, and technicians, administrative personnel. And 
it sounds like, wow, they have all the people they need. But in fact, Brian, their mission has gotten so gargantuan, so hydra-headed. They have so many things they're responsible for that 7,000 ends up not being as many as they need. Their mission is everything from protecting the president to the 40 other people they protect, the first lady, the vice president's children, the the president's grandchildren, uh, the vice president's stepchildren, um, the national security officials many people can't name. And they're also responsible for protecting events that could be the target of terror, a Super Bowl, um, an Olympics event. They are responsible for that. Of course, they're responsible for protecting the inauguration. They're also in charge of studying trends in school shootings. They're also in charge of uh, their, their legacy mission, which is investigating financial crimes. That's expanded to include cyber hacking and cyber theft. Uh, many other agencies are engaged in that kind of investigation, but the Secret Service still clings to that role that, that was part of the reason that it was founded was to you know, investigate counterfeit money and protect our monetary system. Um, But their job is so much bigger now, and it's too big. Who is Rafael Rafi Prieto, and why did you talk about him in your book? He's a, a tragic figure in my book and a real person who had a wonderful reputation as an agent, and it was a very senior uh, supervisor on President Obama's detail. He um, killed himself in the midst of an investigation after Cartagena blew up in the Secret Service's face. In that investigation that kind of went to ground on all of the behavior of agents over many decades, it was discovered that Rafi Prieto had been leading a double life and concealing for years uh, relationships that he had with women who were foreign nationals. That is forbidden because Secret Service agents are, of course, targets for spies and counterintelligence officers. And if they have any interaction with foreign nationals, they are supposed to report it in 72 hours. But he had not told the truth on many of his formal national security interviews for his job and not disclose this information. Sadly, you know, Rafi did his job beautifully. People really looked up to him. He was personally known by President Obama. uh, And being an agent was really the defining moment of his life, the defining pillar of his life. And he was facing the real possibility while he was under investigation that he was going to lose his job. During the Trump years, there was a man named Jonathan Tran, son of a Vietnamese uh, family, immigrants. Uh, what's the Jonathan Tran story? You know, to me, Brian, the Jonathan Tran story is is so important because it is almost unfathomable that he got inside the White House grounds. In 2017, just weeks after March 2017, just weeks after President Trump was inaugurated, it's a Friday night, he's inside the White House. I'm sorry, there's a really bad storm here. I just want to 
apologize for the background noise of lots of lightning. Anyway, he ends up jumping over the fence, getting inside the White House grounds, and being on the grounds for 17 minutes without being captured, without being found by nearly 100 different Secret Service officers and agents who are responsible for securing this 18-acre compound that is supposed to be the most secure in the nation. It is just stunning. That night, he is able to tie his shoes, casually jump over three different barriers, make his way all the way to the east wing of the mansion, jiggle the door to see if he can get in. He's able to uh, walk around to the south grounds and also look at maybe entering some of those steps and stairs that lead to the residence where President Trump is upstairs. And what I guess is the reason I use the word unfathomable is this exact thing had happened in the, in the fall of 2014, and the Secret Service vowed then never again, it would never, ever happen that somebody could get onto the grounds, as, as this person did in 2014, and get inside the White House. But it, again, it happened again in 2017, and it was because alarms and sensors and cameras and lights that are part of the security network that, that creates the bubble around the White House and around the president and protects him from being assassinated, all of these were partially on the fritz that night. And the Secret Service had basically been trying to make do and had not replaced them. And it led to this really humiliating repeat security failure. Well, as you point out in your book, and anybody that's been to Washington knows that the Treasury Department sits right next to the White House. You point out that uh, Jonathan Tran jumped over a five-foot fence right, I think on 15th Street, right next to the Treasury Department, and made his way over to the east wing of the White House and then into the South Lawn. I guess I don't want to sound incredulous, but how in the world could you move (laughs) all that way with all these agents? And you point out that there are 154 agents that are in and around the White House when a president's in there. Yes, it is, you know, really stunning. And, Brian, you ask exactly the question that then Secretary of Homeland Security John Kelly asked of the the acting director at the time, Billy Callahan. He said, how in the world did this happen? And I'm sure actually based on reporting, (laughs) I actually think he used a few expletives when he asked this question. As we all know, John Kelly ended up becoming the White House Chief of Staff for Donald Trump, uh, though they parted unhappily because John Kelly found President Trump to be uh, a pretty impossible boss and um, an irresponsible leader. But as Secretary of Homeland Security, he was responsible for the Secret Service and thus responsible for the security of the president. And he just was beside himself in a private briefing where they watched the video of Jonathan Tran make it over the Treasury fence walk along what's called the moat in between Treasury and the formal White House grounds, and then hop over two more barriers to get into the grounds. How could this happen again? 
He also was pretty angry because the acting director at the time basically said, well, you know, we're getting around to these things weren't weren't working. This this camera didn't work. This light didn't work. This sensor that tells us where so-and-so is when they cross a fence line, that one wasn't working so well. And we're, we're going to get those replaced, but we just haven't had the money. You know, this is just not good enough um, for protecting the leader of the free world. Francisco Duran, during the Bill Clinton presidency, fired 29 rounds at the White House. 11 of them hit the house. Explain that story. So this is, you know, amazing story because luckily, as I remember, Clinton wasn't home for this event, which is interesting in history many times when – things like this happen. The president is strangely at Blair House, and I believe that was the case here. Uh, But the Duran story is so amazing because the Secret Service, you know, takes this person out. You know, they, they were able to neutralize this threat rather quickly. If I can speed forward a moment and take you to another event, um, which is when an individual in the Obama presidency drives up on Constitution Avenue, pulls out an assault rifle, shoots at the White House, hits it seven times. That person gets away and evades the Secret Service. And the Secret Service, again, in 2011, I believe is when this happens, November, he he gets away and the Secret Service concludes that nobody was trying to shoot at the White House, that this was just some gangsters shooting, and that the agents and officers who believed they heard shots fired at the White House, an officer who felt sandstone dropping down around her as she tried to guard the outside of the South grounds, that they were, that Secret Service leadership told all their officers and agents they were mistaken. And they handed off this investigation to the park police and basically said, you know, some gangsters were just shooting. And it randomly, that sound was heard by our agents. It's just a coincidence that it was at the White House. Well, four days later, a White House usher uh, learns from a cleaning person that they found broken glass and cracks in the window at the Truman Balcony which happens to be right outside the yellow room where Michelle Obama often preferred to read and relax with her children. And that's how the Secret Service discovers, miraculously, that someone shooting actually hit the White House seven times with bullets. Again, luckily, the president wasn't home that night, but his two daughters were, and so was his mother-in-law, Michelle Obama's mother. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Well, you tell in the book that Malia, the daughter of uh, President Obama, wasn't there at the time but was about to come home, uh, which That's would have right. meant she could have been in the line of fire. 
absolutely correct. And that was the scary thing. And it, it turned out to be quite um, a painful episode, though largely private until uh, agents told me about it. It was very painful for the Secret Service because Michelle Obama was not having any of this. When she discovered that four days later, she was told by the White House usher, who assumed that the Secret Service detail had already told her about this shooting. He assumed they would be the experts, the security team responsible for the White House's, you know, again, impenetrable fortress, uh, the impenetrable bubble around it. But no, they had known, had no idea. And she was learning from an usher, a White House staffer. So she insisted that as soon as her husband got back from a trip to Australia, I believe, uh, that they were going to have a meeting with the Secret Service director and all of the agents who were senior deputies in charge of White House security. And in that meeting, I'm told, her voice got pretty pitched, could be heard through the doors by agents who were guarding the area. And she basically said to the director, you know, maybe my husband wasn't home, maybe I wasn't home, but my children are important. I'm speaking to you not as the first lady, but as a mother. And I would expect you to take some serious precautions to protect my children when we're not here. And I would expect that you're going to figure out if a shooting on the South Grounds has some connection to the White House and to my husband. The story during the Donald Trump uh, White House about the grandson in the Secret Service car. Yes, uh, this is a little bit of an embarrassment for the Secret Service because it just raises this question of are agents professionals or are they just goofing off and bored? Um, Agents have not been particularly thrilled to be assigned to protect the very extended family of Donald Trump. It's not sort of very, um, let's say, cosmopolitan or interesting to be driving around the grandchild of the president to nursery school or to daycare or to, you know, soccer practice. But that is the job for some agents who are on this rotating satellite detail. And the grandson, Donald Trump III, woke up from the back of a SUV where he was being driven. He'd fallen asleep, taken a nap, and he's fairly young and discovers that agents who are responsible for protecting him are taking secretly selfies of themselves with him. And while he's a young boy, he, he finds this really uncomfortable and tells his mother that he just has a bad feeling about this. She, uh, Vanessa Trump, is beside herself, and she relays this to her husband, and they confront the leader of the detail, and both of those agents are ultimately transferred so that they won't have any more responsibility for Donald Trump's extended family. Donald Trump, the president, is briefed on this event about a day after it is investigated, and he's flabbergasted and basically acts as his detail leader, what in the world is going on with you people? You know, is this your standard? Is this how people behave? And 
he uses a little bit more choice language than that. But for our Brian audience, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> as long as we're on the Donald Trump uh, story, I, I think you say that he extended coverage to 18 of his family members. Uh, confirm that, but also uh, how long does Donald Trump and his wife get Secret Service protection and how long do the other members of the family get it? So that is a fascinating and extremely timely question. Um, It is the president's prerogative on his way out the door or the entire time that he is president to extend Secret Service coverage to whomever he chooses. Now, presidents are generally pretty judicious about this. They don't extend uh, details, which are very expensive, willy-nilly. For example, President Obama um, extended coverage for Valerie Jarrett, a senior advisor to him, who didn't naturally get get protection. And um, uh, also, senior advisor Axelrod was given a Secret Service detail after a, a shooter at a Washington museum, the Holocaust Museum, had information about Mr. Axelrod in his pockets, information about how to find him. And that gave them gave police and law enforcement a lot of concern. In the case of Donald Trump, as he was about to leave office, he authorized six months of additional Secret Service protection for all of his grown children which was kind of unusual because they're not, you know, college-age kids or high school kids. They are people in their own right, adults who have, you know, their own children and their own lives and their own spouses. That protection extends for six months, and the period that that ended was this week. Um, However, President Biden has the authority to extend that protection if he wants. And so far, he and his team have not yet answered the question about whether or not they plan to extend that coverage. I will say that it is um, fairly unusual for protection to be extended for people of this age. And Donald Trump also extended coverage for three of his closest advisors for six months, chief of staff, his then national security advisor, and his treasury secretary, Steve Mnuchin. And when we're talking about this, it's about June the 20th, 21st, uh, in case people are listening to it after that. Um, Go back for a moment to the Secret Service protection around the eight-year-old grandson and the wife at that time of uh, no longer the wife of Donald Trump Jr. You talk about her affair with an agent. And also the affair of um, Donald Trump's other daughter with an agent. How did you get that kind of information? And um, are they are these people still in any kind of a relationship? Well, um, this is pretty personal information, and I, I just want to be clear about what we reported about it. Um, agents were the ones who brought this to my attention because not because they were trying necessarily to gossip about the romantic relationships or sexual relationships of President Trump's extended family, but because they were concerned about agents breaking the rules which prohibit 
uh, romantic or personal connections between an agent and a person they're responsible for protecting. You can see the security reasons for that prohibition. If you are in the middle of a true security crisis, you want all of your decisions to be made based on your professional and best security protocols. You don't want these decisions made on your personal feelings. And when all hell breaks loose, uh, the professional method, not the personal method, is what is going to save lives. So agents were growing concerned in the Trump administration that agents had become, one particular agent and detail leader, had become exceptionally close to Tiffany Trump, was responsible for protecting her, and also spending a lot of private time with her, which was sort of unusual to those agents. And they believed that there was something more serious going on and reported that both to their peers and mentioned it to their supervisors. And then ultimately to me, um, I should say that Tiffany Trump has denied that there was anything untoward or anything romantic going on between her and her detail leader. In the case of Vanessa Trump, the same complaints were made. She uh, was viewed by many agents as, as conducting a romantic dating relationship with an agent on the extended family Trump detail. And the agent's supervisors looked into this matter because it was uh, pretty obvious that she was dating this individual. And the Secret Service leadership concluded, I'm told, that the relationship was okay because Vanessa Trump was then estranged from her husband, Donald Trump Jr., and had waived security protection. So if she was no longer being protected, then it didn't matter what kind of relationships she was having with any of the agents who were assigned to her children or to her estranged husband. I want to go way back to the beginning of your book, John F. Kennedy. I learned it for the first time, and I know there's so much out there, but explain the the agent that we probably know the most in this country is a man named Clint Hill. And yeah. when I read your book, it was the first time I knew that the night before John Kennedy was shot, that Clint Hill, who was the fellow that jumped on the back of the limousine to protect Mrs. Kennedy, had been out until at least 2 o'clock in the morning drinking? Yes, um, as had many other agents who were responsible for the president that night. Keep in mind, Clint Hill was Jackie Kennedy's detail leader. And as he explained to me, and I owe him a debt of gratitude, I want to emphasize that, you know, the whole country does. Clint Hill was the one person that day who responded in a split second to the shooting that was happening from behind him. You know, Lee Harvey Oswald opened fire from a top building in Dealey Plaza in Dallas as the president and his motorcade passed through, and we all know the fatal result. But Clint Hill was the agent, though he did not have responsibility for President Kennedy, um, was the agent who was the most worried about how, how they were being held back away from the president's car, and he was the person who instantly clambered onto the back of the limousine at the sound of shots, which he recognized as gunfire. Other agents were a little slower uh, off the jump to recognize what it was. They looked around first before responding to the president's side. But the night before is also a humiliating and painful memory for so many agents. 
because agents who were assigned to the president, along with Clint Hill, went to kind of a bohemian bar that night before in Fort Worth. And remember, they, they spent the night in Fort Worth and had the quick flight to Dallas the next day. But in Fort Worth, they had a long day to unwind. They went to a press club to get drinks and sandwiches, but the sandwiches were gone when they arrived. And the press club said, well, we can give you some drinks, but then we've got to shut down. We've got laws here about serving alcohol after a certain hour. So they ended up at this, again, bohemian kind of bar called The Cellar. And it was a little bit of a salacious place. Women who didn't wear very many clothes were the waitresses, something that looked a lot like lingerie. Um, And they served fruit juice drinks spiked with grain alcohol. And some agents stayed until 2, as as Clint Hill did. Some stayed until 5. It became a a sore point in the Warren Commission that investigated Kennedy's assassination with Earl Warren, the chief justice and the head of the Warren Commission, you know, repeatedly asking the director of the Secret Service, do you really think that a man who's been out late into the night, one drink, two drinks, five drinks, do you really think that person has the reflexes to protect a president under fire? Um, The answer is probably not. Director Rowley, then the Secret Service director, um, tried to protect his agents basically by saying he did not think it made the difference between Kennedy's life and his death, that the agents could probably not have saved him from the shooting that was happening so quickly behind their shoulders. John Hinckley, who shot Ronald Reagan is 66 years old and not uh, in St. Elizabeth Hospital any longer. Sarah Jane Moore is 91, who tried to shoot Gerald Ford, and she's out of prison. Squeaky Fromm is 72, same thing, tried to shoot Gerald Ford, as you point out, and she's out of prison. Uh, Sirhan Sirhan is still in prison. He's tried for parole 15 times. He's 77. He's never gotten out. Arthur Bremer, who shot George Wallace, is 70 and no longer in prison. What's your reaction to the fact that all these people eventually get out, except for Sirhan Sirhan? I mean, a lot of people feel very strongly um, that anyone who tries to kill a president should stay behind bars forever. But And they've come, in the case of John Hinckley, I was in federal court over and over and over again when families of victims, um, you know, came forward to say they did not want to see Hinckley released and testified about the damage that they felt that it would do, the risk that they felt it would create. But in America, people who have a mental health episode, a mental health crisis, a mental health issue that leads them to believe voices in their head that they need to kill the president. You know, they need treatment. And we have a system for assessing fairly thoroughly whether or not they are going to continue to be a risk. I don't know how many decades Hinckley was in a mental health facility, but I'm going to guess it was more than three, possibly more than four. And uh, he was assessed to no longer be a risk after extensive treatment. 
Frank Corder, you write about, flew a Cessna aircraft at 1.45 a.m. in the morning into the Clinton White House. What's the story behind that? And we, I think we, don't we think there are missiles on the roof of the White House and that there's all <laughs> kinds of protection? <laughs> yeah, that might be a little bit of a classified subject, but at least when Frank Corder um, stole a small plane and um, very small plane and started to fly it from northwest of Washington, D.C. towards the White House. He crashed into the South Lawn and he got so close to the White House that literally it was right outside the White House mess, lower windows that people could see. Uh, It's kind of amazing in a way that he didn't do any serious damage. But he was judged also to be um, a person struggling with a mental health episode and crisis uh, and in need of treatment. Many people who attack presidents are um, have something in common with the people who shoot up schools, who ha- are engaged in mass shootings. They are troubled and angry and they are suffering from delusions, often paranoid schizophrenic delusions. They believe that they are put on the earth to solve a problem, and the problem is to shoot a president, or they believe that they will gain important fame by whatever their shooting is. And what Frank Corder's episode revealed beyond the struggles he personally was having in his life was that the Secret Service did not have missiles on the roof (laughs) at the time, um, did not have a method for stopping planes from attacking the White House from the sky. And to be honest, that should have been the first warning pre-9-11 about what the White House needed to secure the airspace around it. It wasn't until 9-11 when Secret Service officers and agents were warned a, a plane hijacked was inbound for downtown Washington and very likely heading to detonate and explode the White House. It wasn't until that moment that the Secret Service began really conceiving and planning for how to protect the president in case a plane was inbound and and about to land and or crash into the compound. And he died. Yes. Omar Jose Gonzalez. September Mm. 2014. This is a really um, dramatic moment because uh, in September 2014, then Secret Service Director Julia Pearson has only been in the job about a year and a few months, maybe maybe a year and a half. And she is has been on a war path to try to get more funding for the Secret Service because she believes the agency is basically bankrupt. She On her first day of work, she announces to the White House Budget Office that she can't do the jobs that the service is assigned to with the money and the tools that she has. She's down hundreds of officers at the Secret Service uh, White House Bureau. She's down hundreds of agents responsible for protection of various detailees and offices. And she's also struggling with all sorts of technology upgrades that have been long delayed, almost like a 
a house that's nearly caving in on one side because of all the deferred maintenance. So she's been working on this, but not having a ton of success. She's also been working on trying to reform the agency's culture, one in which, you know, bad boys will be bad boys and their bosses will help them cover it up. And she's been penalizing and punishing people who get caught doing stupid things, getting drunk on trips, um, getting involved with women they're not supposed to get involved with while they're on work duty. She's been coming down hard on them. And she's not the most favorite favorite director. So at that time, um, what happens is Omar Gonzalez, who's been obsessed with somehow reaching President Obama and communicating to him the risk that he believes the world is facing. He thinks the atmosphere is collapsing and he needs to tell the president this. He's obsessed with this idea. He's having, you know, paranoid delusions. He's been marching around his property um, with a gun to try to secure it. And he concludes that he's got to reach the president. And what he does is march around the White House floor, around the grounds, around the fence, and jumps over the fence. And in 29 seconds that one night, after the president has just left on Marine One for Camp David with his two daughters, he makes it all the way from a public sidewalk to the inside of the East Room, deep inside the mansion. He makes it past six different overlapping rings of security. He's never caught by the canine that's usually on the grounds to try to bring down fence jumpers. He's not stopped by the officers who are at a gatehouse in between the north doors and entrance to the White House. He's not blocked by the emergency response team in tactical gear who are outside uh, and, and seemingly confused about what their role is once someone has run inside the White House. They've been trained for how to stop somebody outside, but now that he's inside, they're not sure what they're supposed to do. And they stay outside. And a brand new Secret Service officer who's only been on the job for a few months hasn't had time to get the training for what you do with an intruder at the White House. And when this person steps onto the platform of the north door, sort of like the grand portico porch, that officer draws his weapon but steps away from the door and allows Omar Gonzalez to walk in because alarms have been turned off inside the White House. They had been very, um, these alarms had been very annoying to White House staff who asked for the Secret Service to turn them down. The alarm boxes have been turned off inside. So the officer who's guarding the inside of the door isn't alerted to the fact that there has been a security breach and that a jumper is on the grounds. She goes to close the door, but unfortunately she's too late and Gonzalez plunges through and knocks her over. Every way this could go wrong, it went wrong. And the result was, you know, no one died, but it was catastrophic because never before had anyone made it inside the mansion. It raised all sorts of questions about 
is this the Secret Service, the elite of the elite, or is this the Keystone Cops? What do you think? I mean, you've spent uh, the last nine, I guess, nine years uh, spending an enormous amount of time on the Secret Service. Have they improved anything in those years? You know, in the wake of 2014, the Secret Service did do a series of things because it was so humiliating, Brian. Um, They added 200 plus agents. They added 200 plus officers. They began uh, studying and ultimately designing new a new higher fence. Of course, it took them until this year to begin finalizing the last section of that new fence, which is just a shocking delay in which I can explain later. But they they really dithered in making the fence higher, which would have prevented a lot of these jumpers. In, in terms of the capacity of the Secret Service, I would just say this. Many of our presidents owe their lives to the valor and dedication of individual agents who will not rest until the president is safely in his, tucked into his bed every night. Their dedication and their sweat and their insistence on perfection makes that possible, makes, makes that life truly protected. But the service shouldn't have to rely on Herculean, nearly superhuman efforts by a number of agents and officers. It should also have a fail-safe method that many, many other, again, overlapping security rings are there to protect from the from the catastrophic, to protect from the disaster. The Secret Service right now is treading water and struggling. It needs a better vision for its mission, one that is not so hydra-headed. It needs the tools to do that mission. It needs technology that is in the 21st century, not in the mid-1900s. It needs uh, intensive, rigorous training. It needs a kind of dedication and rededication from Congress and from the White House that the Secret Service got in the wake of Kennedy's assassination. Carol Lenning, where did you grow up? Upper Marlboro, Maryland. Where did you go to college? Bryn Mawr College outside Philadelphia. Why did you get into journalism? I loved learning things, I think, before my friends did. <laughs> and then uh, I was hooked. I was working on my college newspaper um, really at the request of an older student and an editor. And uh, I found that after, you know, the first excitement, the first motivation of wanting to learn things before my friends, I learned that it, it had a lot of power. to When you shine sunlight on a problem, oftentimes you can get people to start to pay attention and try to fix it. Why did you say in your book, I am an objective journalist dedicated to sharing the truth with the public, and here I have aimed to provide an account that is as close to the full truth as I could determine based on rigorous reporting? A couple reasons for all of that sentence and for 
sub-clauses of that sentence. Right now, journalism, as you know, Brian, is under attack. A lot of people have been led to believe that journalists are partisan or journalists are uh, invested in one side or another. I'm not invested in any side. I'm invested in truth. And I want people to understand that wherever the cards fall, that's where they fall. I find out the facts and I report them, as do all my wonderful colleagues at The Washington Post and many of my competitors who, you know, inspire me and, and of course, you know, bedevil me when they beat me, but uh, are people I look up to and, and admire. And I need people to understand that that's how journalism works. As for the truth as nearest as I could find it, you know, there are a lot of scenes in this book where people who were involved refused to speak to me. And I want the public to understand that there could be other dialogue in a scene or uh, another fact that I didn't learn because I wasn't able to get cooperation from every single person in every single scene. I want to disclose that it's as close as I can get corroborating everything I report, but acknowledging that there are some things I may not have learned and I, I wish I could, uh, maybe in the next book. You say in the book um, that agents would actually call you, and you also refer to a lot of studies that have been done. And I'm leading up to a question of what would be, in your opinion, the number one source of information for this book? <laughs> I don't mean by name. I don't mean Joe Smith. I mean what category, studies, personal you know, that kind of thing. Hearings on the Hill. I feel like that's a hard one to answer because there are multiple sources and there's a lot of information that came from all the categories you just mentioned. Um, my first inclination is to say that the bulk of the information came from individual agents and officers with firsthand knowledge or with knowledge of themselves from firsthand sources. And then after that, it was corroborated by their own emails, their reports that they pointed me to, documents and testimony that, um, part, that partly told the same stories or, again, helped give validity to what they claimed. I also fact-checked all of this information from individual human sources uh, with the people they were describing. So, for example, you know, when I tell the story of Cartagena, it started with individual agents telling me what happened when they were down there, telling me what their friends did, telling me what they saw. But eventually, months and sometimes years later, I was able to obtain all of the internal investigation documents that corroborated and clarified their individual stories. The name of the book is Zero Fail, subtitled The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. And our guest has been Carol Linick of The Washington Post. Thank you very much. Brian, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening. 
please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.